Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm pastor of worship and liturgy here at Emmaus. And as Dina implied, we're also now in a season of transition. And so I'm serving as our interim pastor. But of course, uh, we know that this work is, is bigger than any one of us. And so um, we have a great team of people who are going to be helping guide us through this season and in bringing the word to us each week. You know, um, it was over a period of 15 years that Andy Lucas won our respect and our love, our admiration, that God spoke into our hearts in great and small ways through him. And it's right and natural to feel that loss. And of course, it's with celebration that we send he and Amy into this next season of life and of ministry. Continue to pray for them. They're gonna do great things. They're gonna, as the way they've blessed us through these years, they'll be a blessing to their new community. And yet we here at Damas Road believe that this church it didn't belong to Andy. He was a significant part of it, wasn't he? Helping guide it and shape it. Helping guide us and shape us as the Holy Spirit spoke through him. But we trust that the Lord is leading us on, right? The Emmaus Road is important in our lives, in our, our community. None of us are replacements for Pastor Andy. And yet... The Holy Spirit is with us, and that's good. So between myself, Pastor Grace, our children's pastor, Rick Edwards, our discipleship director, and Bob Franz, the four of us will be kind of sharing the load on preaching um, and guiding us. But of course, there's a whole lot more that goes on at a church than preaching, right? That's, well, that's the myth. Like, what do you do, Pastor, like the other days of the week? <laughs> you, only work, you only work on one day, right? We know that's not true. Um, there's many needs, whether it's like helping the facility, taking care of the facility, or just little things throughout the week. And if you're feeling a desire, a call to be a part of that work, to lend your hand here and there, or even just willing to say, hey, if you need something, let me know. The back of your bulletin, this whole back page is kind of a communication card. If you just wanna fill that out, jot, it, jot something on there, you can just tear the thing off and put it in one of those offering boxes. That's a great way to communicate to us. And thank you, those of you who are here for the first time. We've got like, the room is tilting over this way because we've got a lot of friends and guests. Thanks for being here. But if this is your first time joining us and you don't mind us communicating with you from time to time, there's this card in the seat pocket in front of you. You can feel free to fill that out. And that'll allow us to just stay in touch with you. 
You know, but I have to tell you this morning that I'm super encouraged and excited about this season that we're stepping into, kind of like what Dina said. I think the Lord's stirring our hearts for what is to come, or even what this season, this interim season can be like. You know, and it's maybe no coincidence that, well, we'll draw these connections later, but it's no coincidence that the season is hitting now in the season between Easter and Lent. I mean, Easter and Pentecost. You know, as we seek the Lord in a new way, things have changed. And as we seek the Lord in new ways, we expect the Holy Spirit to be teaching and encouraging us. You know, it feels like the first days of a new adventure, but the roadmap is the same. How Christ, God, the Holy Spirit used the symbol of the cross, the meanings of the cross series that we just have finished. How he used that symbol of murder and shame to empower a revolution through forgiveness and restoration and empowerment. You know, we were reminded that the cross and resurrection reshaped the foundations upon which we base our faith. It reframed everything. And it realigned our world onto an axis of beauty and love. Sounds like something Andy would say, right? <laughs> it is something he said. But in the coming weeks, we're going to continue on this journey in deeply considering the promises, the words, and the work of Christ through, the collection, through a collection of preaching series that we're calling First the Promise. This is the promise that Jesus gave to his followers on the day to wait for the day of Pentecost. And after the season of Pentecost, we're going to enter it right into a series called The Mount. Instructions for life from Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount. Followed by the way, Jesus demonstrating the nature of the kingdom through miracles and signs. And finally, the mystery the nature of the upside-down kingdom of God as told through the parables of Christ. And next thing we know, it'll be Advent. So, pretty good roadmap. It'll be good. So this morning, I'd like to enter into this first series called The Promise. And this is going to be a quick overview. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but this is going to help kind of set the pace or set the tone of what we'll be pursuing over the next few weeks. Jesus is dead, murdered at the hands of the Romans, but more disappointingly and more tragically through the command and manipulation of our very own Jewish leaders. It's finished. Maybe we had it wrong the whole time. How could it end like this? You know, the rumors are that he's risen, but I haven't seen him. Where is he? You know, if that's true, why won't he just show himself to us? Why didn't he finally do what we all expected? Him to come in riding on a white horse, showing everyone once and for all that death could not hold him and that God's kingdom would finally be reinstated. But this quiet, secretive way just doesn't seem right. 
You know, but if, if, if we don't lay low, then we might be next. The murderous threats of Rome are right on the heels of all those who followed Christ. So what am I to do? I've set everything aside for my Messiah. My home, my work, my family, left it all behind just to follow the teacher. To go back now would just feel like starting over. Right where I left off all those years ago, not good enough to make the cut. Not good enough to continue and be accepted by a rabbi. Not quite important enough for God's work. I guess there's just one thing to do. Let's go fishing. Our scripture today, John 21, picks up at this point in the story. It'll be on the screens for you, John 21. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and, the other, and two other apostles were together. I'm going fi fishing, Simon Peter said. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they called out. He answered, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved turned to Peter and he said, it is the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard it, soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for there were, they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. And it was, it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was now hurt because Jesus asked him for a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So for 40 days between the resurrection and Pentecost, Jesus appeared to his disciples this way. Jesus back to his same old self, acting and speaking so mysteriously. (laughs) You know, there's so many questions, but his followers just couldn't bring themselves to spoiling the moment that finally they had a definitive demonstration that Jesus was alive. Can you imagine? Like when you read scripture, when you hear these stories, does it like suck you in? Like what must that have been like? You know, what must have that feeling in Peter's heart when he heard John say, it is the Lord? And just, you know, without a care, diving in, swimming to shore. You know, but they still, throughout these moments, throughout these meetings, they still must have half had the question, well, now what? What now? What's the Messiah going to do? They didn't have to wait long for their next clue. Acts chapter 1 Verse 3 says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that my father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. But what is this baptism? What is this empowering? And when is it finally going to happen, you know? Through this season of Eastertide, you know, this season between Easter and Pentecost, we'll be asking ourselves that very question. What is the empowering of the Holy Spirit? the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and how does it work? And what does this have to do with the establishing of God's kingdom? And when's that going to happen? You know, you can't blame the disciples for asking. They've been like children cooped up in the car for way too long. Are we there yet? You know, and yet Jesus' reply is as mysterious as always. But in his reply, he's giving us a clue about the nature of the kingdom. You know, he once again reminds us that the kingdom of God is not about taking territory. The kingdom of God is rather interested in restoring humanity to its purpose. And as a result of humanity restored to its true nature, we might see territory reclaimed, right? We might see leaders involved in our global economy and our global leadership representing Christ well. You know, but that's a byproduct 
of what God's really interested in, which is the human heart. God has a plan for how we, this church, we partner with him in the work of the kingdom. And he gave us pretty clear instructions. Wait and receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then that, with that empowering and guidance, go into the world and do what Jesus did. And while the details of how this all works might kind of seem foggy, you know, as us, for us today, as it was for that church in Acts, scripture gives us clues, markers, touchstones of how to recognize the work of God. There's many ways that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of Christians. But they all share one common goal. The work of the Holy Spirit is all about making us more like Christ. The Holy Spirit works in believers by renewing our minds to have the mind of Christ so that we can see the world the way God does. And so that we can actively impact it the way Jesus did by being led and empowered. This work primarily happens in six main ways. First, the Holy Spirit leads us to truth. Second, he reveals and interprets God's word for us. Third, he guides our hearts and convicts us of sin. Fourth, he shapes our thoughts and behaviors, making us more like Christ. Five, and he empowers us to bear witness to and to enact the kingdom. And finally, he unifies us with others. We're going to take a real quick, brief look at each of these six. But if we think about it, this is kind of how God works in and through us. And this is what we see scripture explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. One beautiful title that Jesus called the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. John 16 says, when the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. And he will not speak on his own, but will tell you of what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. What Jesus is telling us here is that when we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we receive direction and guidance as we seek him. The Holy Spirit will not leave us in confusion, but will reveal to us the truth by illuminating the dark areas in our lives, giving us clear vision for God's purpose. The Holy Spirit reveals and interprets God's word for us. When Jesus walked on earth, he was the one who was able to teach. He interpreted scripture for his followers. And he taught everywhere he went. That's what he did. But since he is not physically here, the Holy Spirit has now taken that role and does so by revealing God's word to us through the wisdom and the accounts of scripture but also in his revelation to us and guiding us in our thoughts and our prayers. You know, scripture is in, is in itself complete and trustworthy in all things that lead us to salvation. But it's impossible to understand it without the Holy Spirit helping open our minds as we enter into scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what might be off in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do right. 2 Timothy 3.16.
The Holy Spirit guides our hearts and convicts us of sin. As the Holy Spirit is working to make us like Jesus, they do so by softening our hearts and revealing places of sin, our shortcomings. These are the things in our lives that hold us up, that bind us, that distract us, that hinder us from ultimate, and ultimately offend God's heart. You know, if we have sin in our lives, which newsflash, we do, right? Holy Spirit will bring that to our attention, encouraging us to lay those things at the foot of the cross and to be restored. Conviction is not a very popular term for us these days. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit is beautiful and it's good. It's safe. Being humble, teachable, and quick to admit when we've made a mistake, when we've done wrong, this is a clear sign the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. The Holy Spirit shapes our thoughts and behaviors, making us more like Christ. The Holy Spirit inspires our thoughts, the experiences we have in our day-to-day -day lives, our reading, our listening, moments of silence, moments of chaos in such a way that we experience both these times in which, wow, I, I'm in a crisis right now. Like, what is going on? I'm at my wit's end, and you call out to God. And yet, we might be in seasons in, in which maybe we're not feeling that crisis, and yet we trust that the Holy Spirit is working in us, continuing to shape us into the likeness of Christ. We in the Nazarene Church have this term, sanctification. You've heard this term. Maybe not unique to Nazarenes, but this describes this idea of the way the Spirit works in us in both moments of crisis, but also in the process. We have moments in which the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of our heart in a new and tangible way, and there's a change. And yet we also trust that as we continue to seek the Lord, as we continue in worship, as we continue in the sacraments, that we are daily formed more into his likeness. Finally, the Holy Spirit empowers us to witness and enact the kingdom of God. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The power that the Holy Spirit gives us is something that stands out. It should be recognizable in your life. It stands out in our world because it's different, because it's different. You know, we'll be investigating how this worked in the stories that we have in scripture, but it happened in signs and wonders and healings and supernatural generosity and love and wisdom and calm in the face of threat of our lives. And the people who witnessed the believers doing these things were changed. Of course, those being healed were changed. Those being encountered, receiving the words were being changed, but also all those who were looking on. And that's what our lives should be like. We should aspire for this and chase after this. The Holy Spirit testifies to the beauty of the kingdom.
Just as your life has been guided and healed, so God is guiding and healing in the lives of others. We need to trust that his work is happening all around us. And we need to continue to ask the Lord to use us as an example, as people of compassion and people of encouragement, and then taking our actions to work for his kingdom. Because that's how the kingdom is built, right? Through you and I, as we do this work. Okay, you with me? We're doing good. Number six. The Holy Spirit unifies us with others. The unity brought to us by the Holy Spirit is revealed in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, where it says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that they, everything that they owned was not their own, and they shared all that they had. This is the unity that we need in the body of Christ today. If we draw near to the Holy Spirit, love will bloom in our hearts for our brothers and sisters, but also for our friends and enemies, for neighbors and refugees. The Holy Spirit ignites us with an urge to get side by side with those who are in need, those who are going through difficult times in life, to roll up our sleeves and to get involved in the mess. As a reminder, the Holy Spirit works in believers by renewing our minds to be like the mind of Christ, allowing us to see the world the way God sees it and to actively impact it the way Jesus did, being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that we'll be discovering and we'll be pursuing over these next few weeks. We're going to dive deeper into some of these as we... Uh, Pursue the Lord in this. The question that we want to keep asking ourselves is, what might we, what might you, what might our church look like as we press into the birthright that we've been given, the promise that we've been given, the power of the Holy Spirit? I'd like to have us, in closing, take a quick look at what it might be like, what might the outcome look like. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in one another's homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a lot there, and that would be a whole sermon, kind of unpacking that, but I'd like us to think about two things that really stood out to me devotion and generosity. If you've been around the church very long, you've likely heard someone say something like, why does the church have to be so complicated? Why can't it just be like the church of Acts? Right? Maybe you've even felt that way yourself. Why do we need these big buildings, these sanctuaries, worship bands, you know, rocking out? 
children's education programs and professional ministers. And I agree, I'm, I'm with you. Let's do it. Let's do the church the way it looked in the book of Acts. But I think we have to be honest and, and really real here in considering what the church of Acts might look like in the 21st century, right? The gathering of believers in the first century Jerusalem will obviously look and sound and smell and operate differently than it does here in Fort Collins, Colorado in 2022. But that doesn't mean that shouldn't be our guide and that shouldn't be our inspiration. I'm gonna read that again. And I encourage you just to kind of switch on your creative thinking. Maybe even close your eyes as you're here at this time. And as we go through each phrase, what jumps to mind as to how that might look for us today? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. They devoted themselves. You know, if there's one thing for certain, it's that we're all good at devoting ourselves to something. <laughs> you know, no matter how niche the subject, there is a streamer, a YouTuber, a podcaster who's got hours and hours and hours of content for you to dive into, right? You know, in our lives, it's not a question of whether we're able or good at devoting ourselves to something. Maybe it's, are we devoting ourselves to the right things in the right order? Of course, we can be devoted to many things, but I think what I'm hearing here is that the, the, the believers made priorities. Andy didn't do this very often, but can I get really personal for a second? What does your devotion to the teaching of God's word, what, are we, what we're doing here today, the fellowshipping of believers, what we do in our life groups and our special activities, where does that rank for you compared to your other activities and your other entertainment? What tends to shift on the calendar as opportunities and invitations come up? Would you describe our modern lives as ones being devoted and committed 
to the gathering of the believers and to the teaching of the apostles. I'm not saying that if you're not here every week, some, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> In our culture these days, we recognize that there's a lot and that it's not just about what happens here on a Sunday morning that shows whether you're devoted to the life of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. But there is something special about setting aside the times that the believers gather together. You know, what I guess I was thinking about is the fact that our lives have become less about devoting ourselves to gathering but, and more about what are our preferences. We are people of preference. We're shaped and formed by our culture to believe that our first priority is to ourselves and our pursuit of preference. What makes us unique? We love this, but you know, we also come at times of tension where we just hate it. Like we're so scattered. How many of you are like on your fourth or fifth or 10th set of good friends, right? Because we've become transitory in one another's lives. Perhaps because we have such a hard time committing to anything or anyone. You know, instead we chase our preferences, which are constantly shifting and changing anyway. It's like a cycle. You know, in the philosophical masterpiece of our time, Parks and Recreation, um, Leslie Snope is complaining to her boss about her boyfriend because uh, their relationship is just not progressing the way Leslie wants. You know, she's lamenting to Ron that, you know, her boyfriend just seems distracted and shallow. And Ron Swanson, philosopher and sage of our time, says, He's a tourist. He vacations in other people's lives. Taking pictures, putting them on Instagram, and he moves on. All he's interested in are stories. Basically, Leslie, he's selfish and you're not, and that's why you don't like him. <laughs> you know, are we tourists in one another's lives? Do you yearn for something deeper? Do you yearn for someone to be devoted and committed to you? Do you yearn to be devoted and committed? I think we do. Next, they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. What does this type of generosity look like in the 21st century? life-changing generosity. Maybe it, maybe it is selling a second home and now you've got all this cash and you can help. Maybe it is, but you know, more than likely, it's little choices. You know, I've heard it said like this, there are four prime contributing factors that victimize the American poor. Kind of like four anchors that tend to keep people in poverty. I'm not talking about people who are choosing a lifestyle that, that looks impoverished. I'm talking about people who don't have enough and are victimized by it. And they try and try to break it and they can't. Four anchors, 
access to healthy food, access to housing, access to childcare, and access to transportation, especially in our context in Colorado. These four things make all the difference in someone's lives. We're not gonna solve these this morning. These are things that, that grabbed my heart as I was reading. But over the weeks to come, I hope that we're burning with that desire. How can we see God's spirit make a difference in us and then we make a difference in our community? You know, think about it. Think about what a single mom or a single dad goes through each day who has kids, trying to get them to childcare, get them to school, get to a job. Think about those four things and how those play into that struggle. You know, I'm so proud of our church's partnership with Faith Family Hospitality. It directly meets three of those four things, food, housing, childcare. We'll continue our partnership with FFH. We'll double down on it. But I wonder how we can see more opportunities for our community in those other four areas. What steps can we make in our lives to open ourselves up to the work and filling of the Holy Spirit? And what ways can we devote ourselves to the community of believers here at Emmaus Road? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for touching our hearts today, for inspiring us, for the role that you play in our lives through leading us to truth, revealing yourself, convicting us of sin, interpreting scripture. Lord, empowering us to be your witnesses, to enter into the work of your kingdom and Lord, to unifying us to one another. God, we confess that at times we don't do this well. Forgive us, Lord. Inspire us and challenge us and call us deeper. As we enter into a time of communion, gathering around this table, I encourage you, whatever maybe the Lord spoke into your heart as we share together, whatever you feel stirring, hold on to that. Hold on to that thing. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and to reveal what he might be saying as we gather around the table.